All right. Well, we are now joined by Henry Lowendorf, who is the director of the Greater New Haven Peace Council. He's a longtime peace activist and has battled on many fronts for peace and justice in New Haven. So, Henry, it's great that you could join us here. And we've been considering, of course, all of us, the situation in Ukraine and trying to make sense of this situation as it's portrayed in the, in the U.S. media, it's 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 all white. You know, <laughs> the United States is all right, and the and the Russians are all black. They're all wrong, and it seems like we're getting a very one-sided view of the situation. Quickly, give us your sense of the way the U.S. media has characterized this, and um, what we need to look out for when when we hear those um, interpretations coming from military contractors and uh, ex-generals and people, you know, in the military-industrial complex who appear on cable news all the time? Well, first of all, I think we have to absorb the fact that the war in Ukraine is costing thousands of lives. It's generating millions of refugees, and it's destroying billions of dollars' worth of infrastructure. It's horrible, as wars are. It's horrible. And the broadest demand we can make, which should have everybody on board, is to demand it end quickly. And the only way it can end is through honest negotiation. There's no other way. There are no victors. There are only victims. We have to demand that Ukraine, Russia, the United States, its NATO allies, immediately come to the table to agree on a prompt ceasefire, agree to stop pouring weapons, trainers, and troops into Ukraine, and quickly initiate steps toward peace and common security for all the parties. And we have to insist on honest negotiations, not one-sided dictation of terms. And you're absolutely right. You, the, the, the media and the government in this country has present, presented a very one-sided picture, uh, intentionally, of course. And not only is it presenting a one-sided picture, but uh, major voices of dissent are being censored by the media uh, and uh, even by some of the, the social uh, social uh, media and uh, by PayPal and so forth. So that one-sided presentation is 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 the monopoly it's a it's it's trying to be a monopoly and that's what we face uh it's possible to get to hear alternative voices but you have to go searching yeah right good point and i think you're going to find most of those online through uh podcasts and and alternative news broadcasts such as Democracy Now! and Counterpoint, which broadcasts here on Monday night from 8... Let me think about, me think about this. They just changed, changed the time, but it's from 8 to 9.30, yes, on, on uh, Monday nights with Scott Harris. Fantastic program. And uh, on random programs such as myself, my, my own, uh, t- as, as is the example of tonight. But the portrayal by the U.S. media... What's lacking, from my point of view, is any attempt to provide historical context to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. 
which I personally decry. I mean, I think it was a horrific way for the Russians to solve the problem that we, I think we're going to discover through this discussion was to some extent foisted on them by, by NATO and the United States. But still, a, a horrific way to, to uh, resolve it was a full-fledged invasion with missiles flying every direction and civilians being killed willy-nilly. That's my, my sense of it, is that the media has literally determined, I don't know if they made the decision or whether they're just feckless enough to have left it out of their interpretations because they don't think about these things, but they've left out any kind of historical context or trajectory from this uh, situation. So we see it as all of a sudden Putin woke, woke up one day and said, okay, guys, let's go in and start taking over Ukraine. What are your thoughts on that? Well, that's accurate. I think you've, you've nailed it. The, the way the government and the corporate media that basically broadcast whatever the government says in terms of foreign policy choose when history begins. So as far as our media are concerned, history begins on February 24th when Russian troops entered Ukraine. That's when history began. But the fact is that history began long before that. The history of the, the conflict did not begin in February of this year. One could argue that it began in the winter of 2014, eight years ago, when the United States through its representatives uh, from the State Department and the CIA and National Endowment for Democracy and other organizations that interfere in the life and politics of many countries, when the State Department arranged for a coup to take place in Ukraine, a coup that was uh, led by violent neo-Nazis, and the United States chose who would replace the constitutional government. Our guy Yats, as uh, the official Victoria Newland spoke of him, uh, make sure that he, he became the prime minister. Make sure that the, uh, the early elections that had already been agreed to by the constitutional government uh, elected someone that the United States controlled, Poro Poroshenko. And from that point on, from that coup on, violence started. The government of Ukraine, or what was left of it anyway, outlawed the Russian language, which many, many people, especially in eastern Ukraine, was their first language. It's no longer an official language. And violence erupted in eastern Ukraine, often, or for the most part, led by these Right, extreme right-wing ultra-nationalists and neo-fascists and neo-Nazis that, that murdered people and tortured people and burned people alive. And so that led to a whole series of events. Uh, and so for eight years, uh, there was violence. Various uh, regions of eastern Ukraine seceded or declared themselves independent or, or asked for a certain amount of autonomy within Ukraine, but they were attacked. And so there was a war going on for eight years. That's ignored. And one could go back even further to the 1990s, when the United States, as part of the agreement to unify Germany, 
Agreed. As the as the Eastern Bloc, the socialist countries were capitulating to capitalism, including the Soviet Union, promised the United States promised that NATO would not move east of the border of Germany. And then Clinton, Bill Clinton, ignored that promise and exactly did exactly that. And so NATO moved up to the borders of Russia, held in, in put troops and tanks, and uh, has every uh, made plans to put anti-ballistic missiles in Romania and Poland, and they hold war exercises on the border of of, of uh, Russia. Now they didn't do that so they could look at the birch trees or smell the flowers in Russia. They did that for a purpose. That was to threaten Russia with an invasion, to intimidate Russia into doing what the United States, whatever it wanted to do, it would do because it was terrified of an invasion. So this war that we are told started in February, in fact, started 20 odd years ago, 25 years ago. Yeah. Henry, I, w- I want to interject a point uh, about that. You know, we may think that Putin had nothing to fear from the troops that were on his border, the NATO troops or tanks or missiles. Those were just there as a defensive thing, you know, against some unforeseen uh, development. But that may be our point of view on this, although I think that's disingenuous. But Putin and the Russians saw it as a threat, as a direct existential threat, and took countermeasures trying to argue against that kind of deployment. And ultimately, we wound up in a situation where they felt so threatened by the course of events that they started with reabsorbing Crimea back into the Russian Federation and now feel that they have to take territory in eastern Ukraine and defend those folks there and, and really draw the, the red line and say no to NATO. They perceive is quite different from what we argue is our simple strategy of, of being defensive. And I, I think that that's something that uh, most Americans have no clue about. They just don't think about the Russian point of view here. Well, it doesn't count in the in the U.S. version. What what counts is the reading of Putin's mind. That's basically what our experts do. They read his mind. This is they hold, you know, they have a crystal ball and they can read his mind and they can tell what his motivations are. And they don't listen to what he says and they don't even watch what he's doing or look at the point of view of the world that he has, that's not part of their processing. The situation is presented as if the United States has this moral clarity about what's going on. And I have to say, after I've been in the peace movement since the mid 1960s, and I didn't, I wasn't born into the peace movement. It was a, it was a difficult learning experience. But I have to say, in, in that amount of time, I have seen The United States invade one country after another. I've seen the United States overthrow democratic governments and and impose dictators on one country after another. I've seen the United States assassinate leaders or try to assassinate leaders on a regular basis, or maybe it's an irregular basis, just constantly doing this. We look at, just in this century, we look at the invasion of Afghanistan, We look at the invasion of Iraq. 
We look at the invasion of Libya. We look at the ongoing wars that exist in those countries, in Syria, that the United States is helping to continue and has weaponized these extremists. The United States has bases in Syria where it has stolen the territory of Syrian oil and wheat, starving the Syrian people of energy and food. We see what's going on in Yemen. Hundreds of thousands of people being killed by our allies with U.S. help. And somehow all of that gets thrown out, that murder and mayhem that the United States has created over these many, many years. That gets thrown out, and the United States now holds the moral high ground in Ukraine. This is a complete absurdity. And this is yet what is being broadcast, and our government is telling us we have the moral authority, and the, the, the United States has this authority and understanding and clarity to tell the world what needs to be done. Indeed, that's an excellent summary, I think, for my, myself and for hopefully many other listeners. I think there's another element in here, which is something that has come up recently when people have been talking about how Russia is threatening nuclear war in offhand comments made by Ambassador Lavrov and others. The um, dismantling of two very important nuclear treaties that were negotiated with the Soviet Union, one was trashed under uh, George W. Bush and the uh, most recent one under Donald Trump. Tell us about what those were and what effect those have on Russian thinking about uh, the expansion of NATO. It's a very good point. Uh, Russia inherited the treaties and obligations of the Soviet Union. And one of the treaties was the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, which was intended to prevent the ability for a first strike, which means that one country can shoot its missiles at United, United States or Russia. But let's take, take the reality right now. The United States could shoot its missiles at Russia and destroy most of their missiles, but there would be some missiles that weren't destroyed. And the anti-ballistic missiles were to prevent those remaining missiles from reaching the United States. So the United States would be immune to a nuclear war in this narrow way of thinking. And so that anti-ballistic missile treaty was trashed by George W. Bush. The second treaty that you mentioned, which is the Intermediate uh, Nuclear Forces Agreement, which was negotiated by Ronald Reagan because of the largely because of the peace movement in the United States and Europe. The United States wanted to put intermediate-range nuclear missiles in Europe. These would be able to reach Russian territory in a very few minutes, giving the Russians, if they saw something on radar, the Soviets at the time, if they saw something on radar, mere minutes to decide, is this a flight of a flock of birds? Is this a weather satellite? And mistakes were made. Or is this incoming missiles trying to first strike to destroy us? And that treaty prevented these intermediate-range missiles by the United States or Russia from being placed close to the, the, the borders. Trump destroyed that one. And so as NATO moved toward the Russian border and to the Russian border and held these exercises and now is placing missiles in Poland and Romania, the Russians look out and say, 
well, you're not doing that. You're not doing us any favors here. You're threatening us. Let me just say a couple more things. One is in 1962, the Soviet Union put nuclear ballistic missiles in Cuba. And John Kennedy, the president at the time, when, when, the, when this was discovered, he went ballistic. And he threatened nuclear war until those missiles were removed. And an agreement was made to remove those missiles in exchange for the U.S. removing missiles that had, it had earlier placed near the Russian border in Turkey. So the United States does not like the idea of having a major foreign military power that is an adversary put its military missiles or its troops or its tanks near the borders of the United States. It reserves that for itself, but it is hiding the fact that Russia has the same right that it doesn't want to be threatened by the major economic military power in the world, the United States, on its borders. But that's in, in, in the view of our elites, in the view of the government, both Democrats and Republicans, and the way the corporate media presented, that's irrelevant. What Russia sees is irrelevant. We impose on Russia, or the people who run this country impose on Russia, the view that we want to impose. We put words in their mouth. We decide what they think. We tell them what their motivations are, and they're all evil. But it's, it's a mirror, because the United States is basically mirroring its own actions. Thank you, Henry. I just want to mention that uh, you're listening to WPKN in Bridgeport. And uh, my name is Richard Hill. I'm here with Henry Lowendorf, who's the director of the Greater New Haven Peace Council and uh, a longtime peace activist. As he, as he pointed out just now, he, he, got, he started uh, developing his peace activist chops back in the 1960s. Was that in response to the Vietnam War, Henry? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let me just say that my background, I was, so would be probably described as a you know, sort of a moderate Republican. And in the mid-1960s, and, and I, I had taken a civics class in high school, and the, and the civics teacher convinced me that I had a responsibility, all of us had a responsibility to, you know, defend our country or to give something back to our country. So in the mid-1960s, I was already in graduate school at that time. I saw this war, and I said, well, do I support the war? Is it an important war on Vietnam, or do I oppose it? And so I investigated the 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 process. I investigated what was going on. And there were teach-ins. And the, the debate in the teach-ins is very reminiscent, or, or now I, it's very similar to the debate today. Who can fight the wars better, the Democrats or the Republicans? There wasn't any debate between the Democrats and the Republicans of stopping the war. It was who can fight it better. And listening to all of these arguments, and then I, I said, wait, let me listen. Let me see if I can find some dissenting voices. And ultimately, I found that there were organizations that say stop the war. And I joined them and I realized very quickly that this war was a big mistake. And a few years later, I realized that the war wasn't a mistake. It was U.S. policy. The U.S. had overthrown governments and invaded countries which I didn't know. I didn't know the history of the United States. And, uh, and so I had to learn the history before, uh, of what took place before I 
got into the peace movement. And since then, I see it live. I mean, how many countries do we have to invade before people realize that the United States, in the words of Martin Luther King Jr., is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world? And what he said in 1967 is at least as true today as it was then. The United States is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. I believe he was assassinated for what he was saying and what he was doing, which was taking taking part in the peace movement and expanding the civil rights movement into the peace movement. It was a very dangerous thing he was doing to the people who run the country. There's a lot of speculation that I've done about that, too, and that as Martin Luther King moved closer to the, I guess, the analysis that was being brought to bear by Malcolm X before he was assassinated and the types Mm -hmm. of alliances that he was proposing to form, because Malcolm X was starting to reach out to different communities as part of his movement, and that, I think, was the uh, straw that broke the camel's back in terms of the uh, national security state in this country with Malcolm X and with Martin Luther King. He was coming from another direction. He was coming from conciliation and negotiation and let's go slow. And, and then little by little through his, I guess, similar process to your process, you know, of, of learning and educating himself and being unable to deny the, the facts on the ground and those that were arrayed in front of his eyes, he started to arrive at this analysis that you described where the, he, he saw that the fight at home for civil rights was linked to the U.S. militarism abroad. By the way, J. Edgar Hoover did everything he could. He was the head of the FBI at the time and had been head of the FBI since uh, it was formed uh, after the World War One. Edgar Hoover did everything he could to destroy the reputation and, in fact, destroy Martin Luther King himself in a way that, that, that we see happening with, you know, the organizations that are being censored today that are dissenting and the individuals that are dissenting. So this is not new, the, the uh, destruction of dissent in the United States. We have a one-party mentality that says, you either think and act the way we tell you, or we will crush you. Of course, we're having this conversation, but there are other people who have lost their ability to have this conversation. Julian Assange is an example. He's stuck in a prison in in Britain for releasing government information that proved that the United States had committed atrocities and war crimes in Iraq and other things, and Edward Snowden, who's in exile in Russia because he released information that proved that uh, we are all being spied upon despite all the denials by the government agencies and we're being manipulated. So, And there, there are people today, Mumia Abu-Jamal, Ab- and, and we could go on. I can name lots of them who are being censored. So the idea that you can dissent in the United States becomes more and more marginalized. The idea of freedom of the speech and freedom of the press means you're free to speak whatever the government tells you is okay to speak. You're free to print whatever the government tells you it's okay to print. Henry, you mentioned uh, just a few minutes ago that it was the peace movement of the 1980s that forced Reagan's hand to approach Gorbachev 
at a, at a summit and to go there with a mind toward negotiating an end to the nuclear arms race. The, the peace movement was huge and relentless and, you know, just completely overpowering in a sense in terms of what we had seen previously. I mean, it was it just was sustained, a sustained effort that brought about uh, this influencing of U.S. foreign policy, which is almost unheard of in our history. What would it take today to, to bring about such a change? And is that possible in today's environment? Well, I wish I knew. I wish I had the answer to that. The peace movement is weak. It's, it's it's splintered. It's small. At least the the um, the organized peace movement. But for for example, it's not. There are some indications that 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 in in some senses the peace movement is much bigger than we. At least the the peace mentality, the peace consciousness in the United States is much broader than than uh, we we tend to think of. For example, when when polls are taken of, about uh, military spending, sixty or seventy percent of the people say we should cut the military, and that's before they even know that uh, two thirds of our federal budget that's voted on every year goes to war and weapons. Most people think it's maybe 15 or 20 percent, but it's it's closer to 70 percent. And the the Biden administration is uh, increasing it once again. It's been increasing uh, every year with the bipartisan support of Republicans and Democrats. One of the curiosities is that whenever there's a Republican president, the peace movement seems to surge a little bit. And when there's a Democratic president, People, there are too many people in the peace movement who somehow think of the Democrats as being the party of peace. Well, it's false. It is not. It's the party of war. The Republicans are also the party of war. There's one thing that the Congress and the executive completely agree on, and that is war and spending money on weapons. They can disagree on everything else, but when it comes to killing people, to making machines that kill, they're in complete agreement. On that note, that we have we have a very sick democracy. To the extent we have a democracy, it's very sick. You know, in the last minutes that we have together, uh, I would like your final word on what we need to be looking forward to in terms of developments in Ukraine and what the United States is doing in terms of pumping, at, at last count, $33 billion heading for Ukraine. They say some of it's humanitarian aid. Who knows how it will end up once it's on the ground there. But last word, uh, we have about a minute and a half. Well, I will go back to where I started, and that is with all the lives that are being lost and all the refugees that are being created and the billions of dollars of buildings and infrastructure being destroyed, we have to end this war. And there's no alternative to ending the war but negotiations. And that means the United States has to stop opposing the negotiations. United States has written off negotiations, doesn't want to negotiate. Our leaders have said they want to bleed Russia into a weakened state. That's what they want to do. They've stated it. So they will bleed Russia, and at the same time, they will kill hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians because it's not U.S. boys and girls, not U.S. young men and women who are going over there to fight. It's Ukrainians. Our government is doing everything it can to extend the war as long as possible in order to destroy Russia. This is insane. We have to say no. We need to have negotiations 
stop of the weapon, stop feeding the military industrial complex, stop charging it to the not only the American people, but to the Europeans. Their economies are tanking. The poor people in Africa and Asia and Latin America are taking it in the gut because the economies are being driven down through this stupid, insane and deadly war policy. Thank you so much, Henry Lowendorf, director of the Greater New Haven Peace Council, for joining us here today at WPKN. It's been a, a lively and uh, kind of gut-wrenching converse- yeah, uh, conversation, right. but I think uh, you've shared a lot of your knowledge and wisdom. We appreciate it. Thank you, Henry. Thank you, Rick. We'll be in touch. Thank you. Okay. Yes. All right.